0: We're going to be spending two weeks on relationships between parents and adult children. Parents and adult children. Uh, This is something that came up to us uh, a couple months ago. People saying, you know, there's really not a whole lot of resources. We don't hear a whole lot of messages about the relationships between kids once they hit their 20s, 30s, or 40s and their parents. You know, once they're out of the house, once they're not under their parents' authority anymore, what's the relationship there? You know, why, well, there's still so much stress and conflict. It feels like sometimes that anxiety between the generations leads to both sides being dishonest, pretending that they like or don't like certain things just to get the other side off their back, just so that they can avoid confrontation. And this certainly shows up when Perhaps one generation is following Jesus Christ and the other is not. Uh, We wouldn't expect any differently. If your parents are Christian and you're not, or if you're believers and the parents are not, then there's going to be strife merely as a result of the two sides having vastly different worldviews, vastly different values. But the generational stress also occurs when both sides are Christians. When both are trying to follow God, trying to do what's right, and are butting heads. In fact, that's the flashpoint out of which this study was born, as I said. It seems like in our current conservative Christian subculture, relationships between parents and adult children are filled with generational landmines. Questions that the two sides have very different answers to. Such as, How to discipline disobedient kids? Homeschool, public school, or Christian school? What kind of church to join? How often to attend that church? To drink alcohol or not to drink it? What words are off limits? What kind of words are unacceptable? And in which settings? Who works outside the home? How does that family paycheck get prioritized? Where does the money go? As I'm saying these things, you are probably thinking, whether you are a parent with adult children or those who have parents, you are thinking of stress. You're thinking of conflict points, spots where you have come into tension with your family members, even grandparents, even grandchildren rubbing as different people come with different points of view on how we're how we ought to live in 2013 it looks different than it did in 1983 it certainly looks different than 1953 and i think both sides have some legitimate concerns some legitimate complaints perhaps how the other side how the younger people they're just not getting it how the older people are just stuck in a different age some legitimate concerns on both. So my question to you is, are we just condemned then to live in perpetual tension? Walking on eggshells, rolling our eyes, ripping people apart behind our, their backs, but keeping that thin smile when we see them. You know that what I'm talking about, right? Is the best we can do simply to coexist? That's the question we're going to be seeking to answer. You say, in two weeks, really? I'm ambitious. But not only that, I feel like I've got a good second perspective coming in next week. One of our adjunct deacons, Mike Garner, is traveling up this afternoon. He's going to be here this week, and he's agreed to teach next week from the parent's point of view, from the older generation's point of view. I think we fairly well represent what I'm going after here, which is people who may have kids, but their kids are not adults yet. So if you have kids between, if you don't have any kids, or you have kids who are up to high school age, you're the younger generation I'm going after here. And if you have kids of your own, who are adults, who are in their 20s or 30s or even 40s, then you are the older generation, the parents, that are under discussion here. Is that fairly straightforward? Mike and I want to go through some of the basic teachings of Scripture to look at some of the, of the mistakes that are commonly made. And We don't consider ourselves experts. We don't think we have the market cornered in these type of relationships. Uh, Mike is, has a son, Jared, and a daughter-in-law and their family. Lane and I each have parents who fit very well into that older generation that we're talking about. So we are learning, we are wrestling through these issues as well. And furthermore, these two weeks, of course, are not meant to answer every question that you might have, uh, They're not going to give you all the tools to make your kids behave better. They're not going to give you all the tools to get your parents off your back. This is a basic course to give you what I think are the core values underneath the conflict, at least the things that should undergird us. There are some exceptions, special cases that you might be thinking of even in this moment. I know they're represented in this room, such as, what if my adult children still live with me? You know, that scenario is pretty common today. The millennials, those born between 1980 and 2000, of which I am one, are called in some, by some the boomerang generation because we come back to live with mom and dad when plans don't quite work out. I know I did that for approximately 15 months after college and paid off my college debt living at home. Another question, what if I have adult children and parents and I struggle getting along with both? Some of you might be in that boat. You say, I've got kids in their 20s or 30s that I'm having trouble dealing with and I have parents who are seniors and I don't know how to deal with them. I feel like I'm, in, I, I feel like I'm caught between generations that are far, far apart. Some of you may say, what if my parents are the ones who bother or offend me with their sinful actions? What if I have to be the peacekeeper, the voice of reason to the older generations in my family? What if I'm the only stable one? And then lastly, perhaps most difficultly, that's a word, and common, sadly. What if my kids shut me out of their life and we hardly see them? What if my parents have shunned me for whatever reason? They don't like the choices I've made. Most of our discussion will assume that parents and children can at least be civil to one another and that they do indeed want the best for each other. But sadly, that's not always the case. And as we go through some of the tools, some of the ways to orient your thinking in these type of generational relationships, you may have to go it alone. You may have to say, my children have cut me out of their lives. My grandkids don't have anything to do with me. My parents have decided that I'm too far gone. What do I do then? And I don't have the perfect answers for you. I do think most of what we'll discuss today is still applicable, that you can do it solo, and you will have to. Because God has given each of us responsibilities in any relationship, especially family relationships. And we'll see what those are and how best to accomplish those. And I just want to encourage you that I do not think the Bible does not represent family relationships between generations as being some type of open sore that can't ever get better. That's not the message of Scripture. There will be difficulties. There will be butting of heads but there is hope that when we pursue God's glory by carrying out his mission within our family relationships, there can be great hope and great victory. So we're going to look at two areas that I have heard, I have seen, I've experienced some stress between generations. And I am going to try to give the perspective of the younger generation but there may be a few volleys that come after the older. Mike and I are not specific, exclusive only to one generation. We're going to present the truth, present what we feel like God's word says in these type of relationships, and I hope you're able to benefit from it. If you have questions, if you have things that aren't answered, a messy situation that this just seems too cookie cutter for, I encourage you to talk to Pastor Ken, to Pastor Matt, to one of the other leaders in our church and get some counsel. Maybe do some reading. At least Fitzpatrick's books are very good places to start about gospel-centered parenting and the relationships there. First of all, the first area I'm going to look at is getting advice from parents, especially to those who have older parents who are looking at your life and want to be a part of that, want to have input. How do we deal with the advice that comes from the older generations? Well, as adult children, we're no longer under our parents' authority. I think that's pretty clear. But we're still bound to honor them. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 makes that clear. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. It's a quotation from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And it was originally given to the nation of Israel and not just to the kids. So we can immediately say this is including younger children, but it's not exclusive to them. The command to obey has an expiration date. probably differs from culture to culture, relationship to relationship, but the command to honor never expires. I like how one writer defined this honoring. She said, "...with humility, kindness, and grace." We esteem our parents as people of superior standing, taking their advice and counsel heavier than others. We know God cares about how we honor older generations. If you remember, he called the Pharisees on the carpet in Matthew 15, 1 through 6, for their creative ways of allowing people to get out of taking care of their parents, to get out. Of honoring the older generations. And Leviticus, 1932 says, "Stand up in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God." See how those are tied together? You show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. Now actually, my generation, as I said, the millennials, by all accounts, is pretty open to receiving counsel, advice from our parents. Some of you in that older generation may say, really? But the research says that we look to our parents more for advice, for counsel. That we like having a relationship with them. That we like hearing their insight. We we want to know the answers to life's questions. And we want to see them in all their scars and all their glory The wisdom they have grown in life's hothouse throughout the years. We need that. The problem is, we don't want to sit at the feet of a guru, do we? We know our parents aren't perfect. And we don't want to go to the master who has all the answers and will tell us everything that we've done wrong. So there's a legitimate conflict there. Robert Lewis, the pastor who put together the men's fraternity program that many of the men in this room are going through, I think we just finished for the year, he says that parents have to go through the difficult transition from coach to consultant. Coach, when the kids are in their younger years, to consultant as the kids become adults on their own. The younger generation wants a consultant But we shrink away from the coaching impulses because we're not under the authority of the older generation anymore. But we do want and need the counsel, the good advice. What I see a lot of days, a lot of times these days, is something that you may have uh, experienced as well. I see parents of preteens, of teenagers, wanting to be friends to their kids. And then, for older kids in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they want to be supervisors. Really, it should be flipped. Parents with younger children shouldn't worry about becoming their kid's best friend. That can come later. That should come later. At that point in their life, they need a coach, they need a supervisor. But as that child matures, as they grow, as they leave the home, as they go through college, as perhaps they marry and have kids of their own, that relationship needs to change. There needs to be a friendship that develops between adult children and their parents. And that's a two-way street. So I want to ask those in the younger generation who are here or perhaps might listen, do you interact With your parents as with friends. What kind of tone in your voice do you use when you're talking with your parents? Is it a tone of voice that you would never use to a friend? It's so sarcastic and so biting to your parents, so aggressive, so negative. You would never speak to one of your best friends that way. Whereas you would give your friend the benefit of the doubt. You assume the worst of your parents' motivations and their intentions. And we can't cut out, as I said, the element of honoring, of special treasuring that needs to be there. So for us in the younger generation, if we are avoiding our parents, either on the phone or physically in person, because they annoy us or because they make us feel uncomfortable, maybe they make us feel guilty, we can't have a friendship We can't have a treasured friendship with them. Just because your parents don't always frame their counsel in the most tactful way, just because they sometimes offer it when you didn't ask for it, just because you suspect that behind their nurturing is that old coaching instinct that still wants to kind of be in control, doesn't mean the content of their input is wrong. You might still need it, even if you didn't like it. Not only that, even when they are off base in their criticism, in their evaluation of us, they're still honored friends that we want and we need in our lives. Those who have uninvolved or absent parents will tell you who have active, involved parents how blessed you are to have their influence in your lives. So be careful not to take that friendship for granted to make sure that you are honoring your parents of whatever age, whether they're 50 or 90 or anywhere in between. Our job in the younger generation is to honor, to esteem parents, to give them a special place in our ears. We may not always like their advice. Sometimes we may not take it. But we listen with respect, with honor. It leads us to the second flashpoint not only the advice that comes between generations but the differences in personal standards between generations particularly between generations of Christians you know getting certain advice from your parents may not be that hard when there's a huge wasp's nest in the backyard when your six-year-old has a cough that just won't end when you're trying to figure out which investment fund to put your money into it's, it's natural then to ask our parents, right? It's natural to get their advice. But what if they are making a value judgment on your lifestyle? What if they look at the choices you make, at the relationship you have with your spouse, with your children, the entertainment choices you have and say, that's wrong, you are messing up, how dare you? and they try to criticize your choices. and That's not as easy to take, is it? How do we deal with that? How do we understand it when the older generation wants to help course correct the direction of the younger generation? How should that ideally look? What can we do to keep general generational differences in personal standards from driving ugly wedges between parents and adult children well first of all we and I'm particularly meaning those in the younger generation again we need to grasp that older family members mean well when they voice their objections to our various preferences or choices that may sound corny overly simple but it's usually true they're involved because they care about us they're deeply invested in how their children and their grandchildren Follow the Lord, and they care about that. Don't, don't slough that off. Don't ignore that so easily. Proverbs 15:20 says, "A wise man brings joy to his father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Think about that. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish man despises his mother. On the one hand is a wise son who lives according to God's values. And it delights the heart of his father, of his parents. On the other hand, you have someone who obviously is making poor choices. They're a fool. In Proverbs, the number one characteristic of a fool is that they do not take counsel. Did you know that? Over and over again, the number one characteristic of a fool in Proverbs, they don't listen to anyone else. They do it their own way. If you want to be Bon Jovi and do things your own way, you can. But the Bible says that's a foolish way to go. And I like... The way that ends. It shows you where that type of mindset goes. That guy despises his mother. It's not just that he ignores them and chooses a foolish lifestyle of his own. He comes to despise, to look down on the older generation. That's the foolish path. So don't take the advice of parents too lightly. Don't take their criticisms and throw it out the door before you even had a chance to look at it. They want the best for you, they may have a point. However, the conflict arises when parents and adult children have different interpretations of how to live wisely, how to live according to God's values in 2013. And that's probably where the most tension comes, when you and your parents have different ideas of what it means to do what's right. What are the expectations for us today And you think you're doing right, and the older generation thinks you're not doing so right. How do we reconcile those differences? It is a common source of tension. And to those of you who have kids, preteens, teenagers, and they're already pushing you, it's just going to get worse because they're going to push further and further as they become young adults. You need to prepare yourself for that. If you've never clashed with your parents or parents-in-law over what's okay, what's not okay to say, to do, to watch, to listen to, then you're lying. Seriously, it is a common source of tension. And realistically, when generations hammer out the differences in what standards of holiness look like, what our values, what's important to us today... It's going to look different, as I said, in 2013 than it did 30 or 60 or 100 years ago. And we understand that. But the Apostle Paul wrote twice on this topic. I encourage you to turn to Romans 14. I'm going to need a watch or a clock. Does someone have one? I don't think my wife grabbed my phone. I'll just grab it. Turn to Romans 14. Here and in 1 Corinthians, actually several different chapters in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle addressed this issue of different standards within the church, within a body of Christians. How can Christians who are very convinced that they're right in different areas avoid looking at each other and starting to butt heads? So look at Romans 14, 5 through 7. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. That goes back to Sabbath differences back then. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves ourselves alone. Paul didn't seem to think that differences within a Christian community of applicational standards were reason enough to split that community into ugly dissension. He didn't think that had to happen. So applying that to our Christian relationships within our family, it doesn't have to split generations either. Mike is going to cover this topic a little bit next week, more from the, to the parents, more to those we'll assume who have the stricter standards. It's not always the case. Sometimes the younger generation is going to end up with the stricter standards than the older generation. But generally, as things loosen up, as our culture changes, some things that were off-limits before, it becomes not such a big deal anymore. Some things that maybe, as a younger generation, we see the older generation was too narrow on, these are not biblical doctrines. I'm speaking of the applications of principles. There are legitimate shifts. But notice that both sides could hold their convictions in a way that pleased the Lord. Look at 5 through 7 again. Be convinced in their own mind. The one who holds the Sabbath can do it to the Lord. Whoever eats meat can do it to the Lord. Whoever abstains can do it to the Lord. This may come as a shock, but God has given us our consciences. And you and I can have different standards, different applications on something, and both be right. Does that sound postmodern? I hope not. But that's what Scripture is telling us. Different families in different generations can look at Scripture, can take the principles very seriously and say, we're going to make a different application for our family. We're going to choose something that we believe is to God's glory, but we're going to, it's going to look different. Christ-likeness in 2013 is going to look different than it did in 1983, than it did in 1953. So look at verses 13 through 18. It says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Ooh, but judgment is so fun. Instead, he says, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. And Paul seems here to take the side of the stronger brothers, those who have the less strict standards. He said, it's fine to eat meat. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, then you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God, it's almost like he wants us to lift our eyes away from the conflict, away from the petty divisions and say, Listen, folks, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval, ideally. But they are pleasing to God. They are serving Christ. So to the younger generation, I want to make this challenge. What you may see in your parents, in your grandparents, as kind of a wacky legalism from a bygone era, you just don't get it. How could they think that's wrong? Why don't they just get off of it? I'm challenging you to take the spirit of Romans 14, which is not to judge, not to think lightly of those with stricter standards than you. Not to look at them and either try to turn away from them. Oh, man, grandma and grandpa, I mean, I, I never know what they're going to think. It's easier just not to say anything. It's easier just to skip family functions because I... I They're going to look at me as soon as I walk in the door and make judgments on me. But that's not our job. It's not our job to take lightly their consciences. They're holding that between them and between God if they're Christians. So our goal is not to make fun of them, not to argue them over to our side, but to respect their preferences as much as we can. Now what does that look like? let me step on some toes. Instead of wearing that two-piece swimsuit when grandma's coming to the pool with you, maybe you dig through your closet for something that she's going to consider more modest. Maybe that you don't have a problem with that, but you know she will. Maybe instead of flipping on the local hits radio station when your dad's in the car with you, you just leave the radio off. You just strike up a conversation with him. Well, it's my car. It's my pool in the backyard. It doesn't matter. It's not about being right because you can both be right. It's about not setting a stumbling block in front of someone who has a different standard than you. Perhaps maybe you don't see anything wrong with certain words. People around you at work say worse than that. You think it's not a big deal at all. But when you go over to your in-law's house, you keep it strictly G-rated. You put a guard over your mouth, because you know certain things are going to bother them, even though they don't bother you. And these may seem mundane, trifling, but they're the kinds of applications we have to make from principles that God gave 2,000 years ago. And this sensitivity to the preference of others is not just, listen to me, to keep them off your back. It's not just to smooth things out. Because that can lead to that type of dishonesty that we talked about, that type of false comfort where everybody is in tension, trying not to step on anyone's toes because we're afraid to say what we really think. That's not what I'm advocating here. What I'm saying is if you are in a younger generation, if you have parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, brothers and sisters in church who have stricter standards than you, then the onus is on you not to step on their toes. To be as careful as you can, in their presence particularly, not to offend them. You're not being dishonest. You're serving those for whom Christ died, as those verses said. You're voluntarily restricting your liberties. That's a very Christ-like thing to do. Now there's one more aspect to consider in determining how our standards affect others. Today's generation, obviously, like I said, is pulling back from some of those generational markers. Just like what was happening in Romans and 1 Corinthians in the first century of the church, the Jewish believers still held to their cultural markers, Sabbath, dietary observance, and other things. The newer, younger, and I'm I'm generalizing, but the Gentile generation that was coming into the church, they didn't see any reason to keep those. And if Paul, in two different times, can spend an entire chapter or more telling us that both sides can be right, that that doesn't have to be a flashpoint, then on those applicational issues, there can be some flexibility. But here's my concern. And again, I'll be very frank. I'm concerned that many in my generation have swung the pendulum too far the other way. That we've gone past the point of moderation And we're jumping into foolish, sinful choices. I'm sure you can figure out what some of those are. In some cases, when we come into conflict with older Christians over differing standards, the solution may not be for the parents to discard their biblical values. And I'll speak to the older generation here as well. It is not for you to reinterpret God's Word because your children and your grandchildren believe differently. Specifically something like premarital sex. It is not okay in any generation for any believers and if you're a parent or a grandparent do not reinterpret God's Word. Do not play down aspects of God's Word just so you can keep a relationship with your children or your grandchildren. And for younger generations, perhaps we need to look in our lives to reevaluate what we've said is okay, what we've put a stamp on. First Timothy four twelve says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We need to work at godliness. To earn the trust of older generations. And that's my challenge to those who are here, or perhaps will be listening. So, to summarize, we need to view our parents as honored friends. We need to treat their preferences with sensitivity. Does that seem maybe too generic? Are you expecting something more? Does that sound too much like a neat, pat little church solution? And you think of the family crises that you've experienced over the last months or years, and you say, man, those, those are good principles, but I'm not sure it's going to help me. You do not know the issues I've had with my parents. You do not know how my kids have gone off the rail. I, I'm not sure that's enough. Here's what I'm starting to realize about the generational differences between parents and adult children we might be making it too complicated. Really. I know there's all kinds of emotions that run high in those settings. We do need to have a special honoring that we set aside for our parents, for our older family members in particular. But when you get right down to it, each parent and each child is a soul, right? Each one of us needs to be redeemed We need to be remade in Christ's image, to be reconciled to God and to be set on a path of righteousness. We're all called both to grow into Christ's image and to help others grow into Christ's likeness as well. That's what being a disciple is all about. And I think that many of the problems we face in our relationships, either with our parents or with adult children stem from the same source. We're occupied with changing them into our likeness rather than in helping them change into Jesus' likeness. I mean that. I feel that in my bones. That would revolutionize the way that we interacted with family members, with anyone, but especially with family members. Instead of trying to carve you into this expectation that I have of what the perfect, so the perfect son is going to look like, the perfect mom is, oh man, if only she would stop doing it. We're crying, trying to create them in our image to make them look like us. That's more comfortable for us. It's more convenient for us. We don't realize that in trying to help them to fit our expectations we may be forcing them away from God's expectations. Perhaps we're in the way of God getting what he wants out of them. We're not helping their sanctification. We're holding it back. And this applies to whether parents or children have saving faith or not. You say, well, my parents aren't saved. My grandparents don't know the Lord. I don't think my kids have anything to do with with God right now. It doesn't matter. The gospel is not just for the moment when they make a decision. It carries us through life as we're being transformed in the image of our Savior. So whether they need to meet Jesus for the first time or whether they've gotten off track, they need grace. Turn to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. How can we help our family members? What does true gospel-centered support for our families look like? I think another apostle has some good answers for us here, very good answers. Look at verses 8 through 11. Above all, he says, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. First of all, love. It's essential in any human relationship. It's sacrificial. It's willing to overlook the faults, the offenses that you may have made against me, I'm not going to make a big deal of that, it says. Hospitality, it provides for the physical needs of people in a selfless way. I love you enough to minister to you without complaining about it, without grumbling. When we speak, our goal is to communicate God's truth, not just our own opinions. When we serve others with whatever gift God has equipped us, we do it in his strength, not in our own. These simple, everyday core values of helping people are accessible to you. Really, they're not that complicated. Love, show hospitality, speak God's words, serve in God's strength. And no one, except for perhaps a spouse, knows your family members like you do, right? Nobody knows or is as well acquainted with their intimate failings, the areas of weakness where they need to be propped up, the times when they are down and they need encouragement, Well, they maybe need a word from God's word, not just your opinions. They need the Lord's principles because they need him most of all. And perhaps God can equip you as a steward of his grace to reach out to your parents, to your grandparents, to your children, not to remake them into your image not to get them off your back not to help have them meet some expectation that you received from generations past but to help them grow in Christ likeness it's not enough just to give lip service to our parents expectations while despising them in our hearts it's not enough to shun that adult child who keeps making shameful mistakes It's not enough to merely coexist with family members in some type of awkward limbo. Friends, if you are a child of God who no longer stands before him in your sin, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then you have a sacred job to do in your family relationships, as do I. In the way we speak, in the way we serve, in the way we live, we point our parents, we point our children to Jesus Christ. It's a noble task. It's one that he has given you the tools you need to do. That's the gospel-centered key to these family relationships. I close with something that I read that has stuck with me. It's challenging, but very practical. Observe the golden rule of parenting. The golden rule of parenting, I think this applies to everybody almost in in this room, You treat your children the way that you want your parents to treat you. And you treat your parents the way that you want your children to treat you. And you say, well, my children are five, six years old. Do you listen to them? Do you respect them? Do you give them their place? Do you teach them God's principles, not just your own opinions? Are you helping them to follow a path of Christ-likeness? Or are you just trying to keep them from annoying you too much? The way that your kids see you treating them, the way, or the way that you, your kids see you treating your parents is the way that they think will be normal, the way that they'll treat you. So to those in the younger generation, I'll just say, if you badmouth mom and dad, if you roll your eyes as soon as you get off the phone with them, your eight-year-old is picking up on that. Your 13-year-old is listening to that. They're catching the frustration in your voice, on your face. Are you helping your family members grow in Christ-likeness? Is your ultimate goal just to make them like you? Or is it to make them like Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord and Father, we have only scratched the surface of this important topic And I thank you that someone older and wiser than myself is going to come in next week and give a different perspective. Father, from what we've learned today, from the principles, the values of your word, we've seen at least a little bit of what's important to you. And I pray that you would help us in our family relationships, yes, to honor those who are older than us in a treasured friendship, yes, to be sensitive when... uh, Applications are different. But Father, ultimately and most importantly, to serve others in love, to point them to Christ and to meet the needs of our family in a way that befits the gospel of Christ. Thank you for this time. And Father, in our name, amen.